0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Groves, and welcome to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. This is a podcast that explores pastoral ministry from an Anglican perspective. If you are a pastor, ministry leader, or an aspiring minister, I, along with my co-host Matt Kennedy, pray that this podcast will help equip and encourage you in your ministry to Christ Church. This podcast is an arm of the pastoral training program, the Cranmer Fellowship, at Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Church of the Good Shepherd is a congregation committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of His life, death, and resurrection through the study, exposition, proclamation, and application of His Word, the Scriptures. If you would like more information about the Cranmer Fellowship, Church of the Good Shepherd, or if you want to reach out to us about this podcast, please do so by emailing us at cranmerfellowship, at gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode.
1: We're going to be in the epistle from James this morning. So if you have your Bible open to James, you'll be set with James chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse uh, 13. We will glance at some of the things that were said earlier in the chapter 2. So let's pray and ask God to help us uh, Lord, we ask that you do help us. You uh, be with us as we think through and hear your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, listen and not just listen with our ears, but also with our hearts. And I pray that we might all uh, follow the instruction that you give to us um, and that you might minister to all of us through this this word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James is uh, Jesus' half-brother. Uh, you might remember, if you've read uh, the Gospel of John, or the other Gospels, that James uh, didn't, didn't believe that his brother was really the Christ for the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. Well, I guess not, not the entirety, because after Jesus rose from the dead and was still on, on earth, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that Jesus appeared to his brother James, and as you can imagine, James changed his mind. He decided that it was all, it was all true. And ultimately, James went on to become the leader of, of the church that was meeting in Jerusalem. Uh, James writes at an, in or around the early 40s A.D., uh, maybe less than a decade after Jesus' resurrection. It was very early on. And he writes to churches that are that are meeting in the region around Jerusalem. Things are not going good for them. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body in, in Jerusalem, very early on recognized and realized that if the whole city of Jerusalem comes to believe that Jesus is God's son and that he's risen from the dead... Uh, that's terrible for us, the Sanhedrin, because we condemned him to death. So we have got to stamp this movement out. We have got to stop these Christians from doing what they're doing and saying what they're saying. And so arrests and imprisonments and executions followed. And, and Christians fled to the countryside around, around Jerusalem. Uh, but when they, even though they escaped from direct persecution in Jerusalem, they, they, the things didn't go well for them. Because they were shunned by the people of Judea, that's the region, shunned as heretics. And what that would mean in that time is that you would be cut off from uh, family members or friends that, that didn't believe the same things you believed. Few would do business with Christians, and so that made it hard to earn a living. And uh, many hired themselves out to work in the fields as, as just common common laborers. And and even there, they're not treated well. Notice the first section of chapter five there, beginning in verse four, that James has some choice words for their employers. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. That's the, that's the phrase that James uses to talk about Christians. That's how he describes Christians, the righteous persons. Uh, now, the employers who are doing these things probably, probably never heard James's warning. James is writing to comfort the, the people who are employed, the, the Christians who are employed. And he's telling them God hears, God knows what's, what's happening, and he is going to set things right. And probably James looks forward to the, the coming of the Romans that Jesus had prophesied. They finally come in AD 70 and they, and they uh, take over uh, the nation. But this, this section here is just one indication, and there are many throughout the letter, that the people to whom James writes are not doing well. They've lost many things. They've been forced from their homes, or had to flee their homes, and the people around them despise them. And so maybe as a way of getting into this letter, let me ask you, how how are things with you? Has this been a difficult year or series of years? Are you having a hard time making ends meet? Have you lost someone? Has a friendship ended, or is it ending? Is a relationship broken? Are you alone, or do you feel like you're alone? Are you sick? Exhausted? Worn thin? For some people, especially if you fit one of these categories, for some people, the merriment of Christmas only heightens the sense of loss and, and pain. Well, James does have a, a, a word for you if you're one of those people. He writes in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, the word for suffering is a, is a broad one and it catches up every kind of pain. Every, every category of loss would be included in this. Smaller, great physical or spiritual, every kind of suffering that you could undergo is, is, is caught up there. The instruction, though, isn't as broad as, as the word. It's very, it's very personal. James doesn't ask, are you church suffering in a, in a corporate way? Is any one among you, any person suffering? So when I asked a minute ago how things are with you, if you said they're terrible, everything's really bad right now, Uh, for whatever reason, things are really bad, James writes to you and and Jesus speaks to you through James. There's a remedy, he says. Let him pray. Let her pray. That's a command there. It's it's not like when he says let him, he's not saying someone's keeping the person back from praying. It's It's a form of a command. Pray, he's saying. And I'm not surprised that it's a command. Because I find, and maybe you're like me, I find that when I'm most hurt and most upset upset or anxious, when the darkness is really pressing down on my soul, for some reason, prayer in those moments seems like the least appealing, least promising, and least practical thing to do. Turning over in my head ten thousand times the situation until it seems hopeless and I can't sleep. That's what I tend to do instead. All the while, I've got I've got Jesus right here. He's not far off. He has come into the very depths of, of my being, and he rules all things. He he reigns over every heart and mind. He holds the universe together by his word of power. And he invites me, and he invites you, cast your cares on me, he says. Bear your heart. Pour out your fears to me, he says. But I don't know why, for some reason, I don't hear him, and I don't do it all the time. As I should. should. Or I wait until I've tried everything else, and then I pray. So I need to be commanded. I need his command to pray. It comes, of course, and we shouldn't miss this, it comes with an unspoken but implied promise. Pray because Jesus will help you. That's the point of it. Uh, Anne is the very best friend I've ever had on, on the planet Earth. Um, I tell her everything. We talk about lots of things. She knows me better than anyone else else could possibly know me, but there are limits to our our communication. Last, last last week on our date night, I was trying to explain something to her, and I could just tell by looking her eyes she wasn't getting it, and so I tried to explain it another another way, and, and she didn't get it, and I tried another way, and she didn't get it. And so I got frustrated, and, and she got mad, and that was a great date night. We ended up frustrated and mad. Um, communication is is complicated because because I've got to formulate the right words to get what's in my head, out my lips, into her ears, and into her brain in an understandable way. And that, that takes some, that's a really complicated thing. It takes a lot of work to do that. And even when it succeeds, and she understands, and can't fix everything. And I can't fix everything for her. But see, that's the great thing about prayer, because because with Jesus, you do not have to find the right words. You you can't miscommunicate with him. He knows. And he owns and rules every inch of the cosmos. You, you, You can't change another person's heart. He can. A thing may seem like an impossible mess, an intractable conflict that can't be resolved, a fear that, that, that you just can't shake, a, a sorrow for which there's no, no cure, but nothing is impossible with him. He can, he can resolve these things. I've been a Christian for 20 some odd years, more than that, I'm not sure, I, don't, I haven't counted it up lately. And I've, I've never gone to him and found him unwilling or unable to help. He always has that hasn't always been the help I thought I wanted or asked for, and it, always, it hasn't always been when I wanted him to help. But when it hasn't been what I've wanted or when I wanted, it's always been better and at a better time. So you go to him with your trouble. That's what James is saying. Pray. Pour out your, your heart to him. Now, um, in every congregation, there are people who are suffering, um, and there are others who are not. And so James talks about those others who are not next. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises, or let him sing praise. This also, also is too easily forgotten. When, when things are well, and again this is maybe maybe not your tendency, but it's mine. When things are well, I tend not to think as much about God as I do when things are are not so well. Uh, the proverbial soldier in the foxhole who prays, Lord, help me get out of this alive. Well, when he gets out of it alive, often goes about his life and forgets uh, forgets Jesus. Part of the reason for this is Jesus's use of of secondary means. Um, With Christmas coming up, I've been personally worried about uh, about having enough money to buy our massive hoard of children presents for Christmas. It's a huge expense when you have a lot of kids. So I prayed and I asked, I asked Jesus for help with this. And the very next week, out of the blue, uh, money from two different sources I didn't expect came along. And I, and I thought to myself when the money came, wow, what, these are generous people. Thank you for, for helping us. It took me a while, actually, to remember that I'd prayed specifically for this. And it, because, because I got it from the people. I didn't, God didn't drop the money down from heaven. So I, I didn't immediately praise him for this, for this great thing. And it's the same thing with, with lots of things in our life. If there's a drought and you pray for, for rain, and the rains come, uh, you can trace the rain to the meteorological processes that brought it about, the low pressure and, and or whatnot. But, but also, you should know and believe that God brought that rain. He, he answered the prayer for rain by changing the meteorological circumstances. So a good rule of thumb is, if it's a good thing, according to the scriptures, if it's a good thing that makes you happy, that's from Jesus. No matter who else was involved, that's ultimately from Jesus. Praise him for it. Every good and perfect gift comes down uh, from him, James tells us and earlier in the, in, the, in the letter. Consider your life, and this, this, this is uh, whether you have a lot or have a little. Jesus rarely, I Jesus rarely gives you only what you need to get by. If he did that, you'd be living on bread and water. And nobody here is living on on, on bread and water. But think about what you've got, what he's given you. You've got a church. You've got people who love you. You've got... Uh, good food to eat when you go home. And some downstairs, you've got good things to drink. You've got clothing that's not just the bare minimum. You can wear nice things. You've got beautiful things to see and to listen to and and to read. Those all come from him. And he didn't just do the bare minimum when it came to, to saving you. I mean, he didn't just die only to take away your sins and that's it. You had to have that to, to be saved, but that's not all he did. He also comes to you and he befriends you and he makes you his son or his daughter. And one day you are going to inherit, you're going to be an heir, you're going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth that he's going to bring about and you're going to live without any sorrow or pain with him forever. So we will always have reason, even if you're in the midst of sorrow right now, to praise him for the things that he gives that are good and that bring cheer. James continues, and he's just naming different categories of people. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let, him pray, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, if you're new to Anglican things, Uh, If you go to the hospital or if you're sick at home and you call me, I'm going to come visit you, or John may come visit you, one of us, and I'll probably be be wearing my collar, and I'll bring a small container of olive oil. The word for oil here is olive oil. I'll, I'll bring a small container of olive oil, probably in a black box, and I'll come and I'll pray for you, and I'll take a dab of the oil on my, on my thumb and I'll make the sign of the cross on your forehead and I'll ask God to heal you. And then I'll open that black box and I'll set up communion because there's bread and there's wine in there. And and before we do that, I'll say, uh, we're gonna confess our sins before we have communion. So let's take a moment and you think of sins you need to confess. I'll be quiet and you can either confess these things out loud or silently, it's up to you either way. And then we'll do that we'll have communion. And just about everything that I just said about everything in that whole process goes back to this passage here in James, in James chapter five. Let's take a closer look at it. The word for sick here. Uh, can also be used for weariness or weakness of body and spirit too. It's a kind of it's a kind of broad word, but but I do think that physical sickness is primarily in view here, and I think that because uh, the person here who's sick has to call the elders of the church to come to him, and and instead of going to them, which indicates maybe he's incapacitated because he's so sick, he he needs someone to come to him. Uh, The elders here are not specifically older people. So James is saying, when you're sick, call the old folks to come and and, and pray over you. These are are pastors. These are the elders of the church. It's an office. They may be old. They may be young. Notice they need to be called. Uh, One lady a while back got really mad at me, and she said, you didn't visit me. When I was in, in the hospital and I said, I didn't know you were there because you didn't, you didn't tell me. I, I think that she had in her mind this idea that pastors just know when you're in the hospital. God just tells them or something and he just knows. And so you knew and you didn't come by. But no, I don't know. God doesn't tell me these things. So when you're in the hospital, you need to call, uh, call the church and let us, uh, let us know. Call me and let us know. Let me know. And we'll come and pray for you. And, I will, or John will, whoever, will anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. It's important that it's in the name of the Lord. That means on behalf of or by the will and authority of Jesus. The elders, the oil, the prayers, they're all, what this means, from Jesus. They're they're all part of his love and, and mercy for you. Uh, when you're sick. What's with the oil anyway? That's kind of a strange thing. Uh, what's it all about? Was it considered a, a medicine back then? That's what some people think. Well, not really. It, 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 people used it because it was a dry climate and you used olive oil to kind of make your, make your skin less dry, but it wasn't considered a, a medicinal cure-all. People didn't think, it, you just rub oil on it, it'll get better. They didn't think that. Is there some special power connected to the oil itself? I mean, we do bless the oil and set it apart for use, but uh, is it is it have a unique power to it? Well, no. Look at verse 15. James doesn't say the oil will save the one who's sick. He says the prayer of faith, which we'll talk about in a minute, does that. So why the oil? The language that James uses here is also used in the Greek version of the book of Leviticus to describe the ordination of priests. Priests were anointed with olive oil, and that that anointing uh, symbolically set the priest apart as one through whom the goodness and the power and the comfort and the mercy of God would be made known to his people. Set them apart. And I think that's probably what James intends here. That's what James means. The oil is a visible sign setting the sick person, setting you when you're sick, setting you apart as a person through whom God's mercy and goodness will be made manifest. It's the outward visible sign of the balm that God pours out invisibly in your soul and we pray visibly in the healing of your body notice there is a promise associated with those prayers. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. Now, this is referring to the prayers of the elders, not the sick person's prayers. We need to be very careful here. If I come to you in the hospital and I pray for you and you're not physically healed, don't think, Matt must not have enough faith. I get it in a pastor who can pray, pray the prayer of faith better than he does. He's not doing it well enough. Uh, that, that way of thinking actually makes Jesus very small. As if he's up there saying, you know, I, I wish, I so wish that I could heal him, that I could, I could heal her. But, you know, Matt just doesn't have enough faith to unlock my power so that I can heal this person. So what am I going to do? I have to find somebody who has enough faith to unlock my power. Now, Jesus never, never does that. He doesn't need anyone's faith to unlock his power. When he wants to heal somebody, he heals somebody. His power doesn't depend on the strength of anyone's faith. But you might look and say, well, doesn't this passage promise that the prayer of faith will heal the sick? Yes and no. Notice that word saved. You see it? Verse 15. There's a more specific word for healing, physical healing, and James knows that word and he uses it in verse 16, where it's translated healed. This word saved can refer to physical healing and it can also refer to spiritual healing. Salvation, spiritual help. Even though it's often translated healed in the Gospels, the same word, saved, translated saved here, the same word, it's called soter in the Greek, is, is usually used in the Gospels when Jesus physically heals someone. And the reason that they use this word instead of the more narrow word for healing is that physical healing is always in the Gospels a picture of salvation. When Jesus raises up a sick person, he's telling you, I'll save your soul and I'll raise you up as well. When Jesus goes to Matthew's house, for example, um, this is an example of a healing, but it's an example of how this word is, how Jesus thinks of these things. When Jesus goes to Matthew's house uh, for, for dinner, the Pharisees, if you remember, ask, you know, why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And there's nothing physically wrong with anybody. There's no physical healing in this passage. But Jesus, if you remember, answers that question, referring to himself as a doctor, as the doctor, and referring to sin as the disease. And he says... It's the sick who need a physician, not the healthy, not the one who's well. James is doing a kind of similar similar thing here. When, when, When the elders pray for you, trusting that Jesus will do for you what is good in one way or the other, when they pray for you, you will be saved. Either God will will heal you directly in some miraculous way, he can do that, or through the doctors, or if he chooses not to heal your body, he will draw near and heal your mind and your heart and your soul, he'll be your comforter and your savior. He'll be your balm, and if it's his will, he'll take you to be with him, which is a far better type of healing than the other kind. You'll forgive your sins, James says. Now, if the, if the person has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Now, in view here specifically are sins that lead to the sickness. That's why there's an if there. If he's sinned, uh, there'll be, he'll be forgiven. We all sin. If, if you're talking about sin in general, there wouldn't be an if there. There's an if. is connected to the sickness. Now, not every sickness, we know this at Good Shepherd, not every sickness flows from a specific sin. We've talked about this many times. But some do. You can drink yourself sick. You may know somebody, or you may be somebody, who's drinking yourself sick. You can eat yourself sick. You can act sexually in ways that make you sick. And God, sometimes because he loves you, lets you feel and experience the physical consequences of your sin so that you will be awakened to the seriousness of it and cry out to him for help and forgiveness. And the promise here, and it's a great promise, the promise here is that when you do that, while you may or may not be physically healed, you will always be forgiven. Now, you might wonder, is that forgiven on the basis of the elder's faith? I mean, he's the one... He's the one praying through the elders' prayer, yes, but, but think of the sick person here. Calling someone to come to pray for you in Jesus' name is also an act of faith. It's also setting your trust in Jesus. And If you don't trust in Jesus, there's, there's no forgiveness out there no matter who prays for you. But if you trust in Jesus, there is. And there are times, maybe you've been through them, there are times when faith and hope... And prayer come hard because because you're so sick or because you're so weary, confused, maybe bewildered by, by pain or overwhelmed by some kind of sin, that you lack the strength even to lift up your heart to the Lord. That's one reason why Jesus sets you into a church instead of setting you out on your own to figure things out. That's why he gives you pastors. That's why he gives you his word and his sacrament. So that through these, he can carry you and and nurse you back to health when you don't have any strength left. Therefore, James says, uh, verse 16. Compare, or sorry, compare, <laughs> confess your compare your sins to other people's sins. Now, it's confess your sins uh, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here, it's fascinating. James uses that that word that specifically refers to physical healing. And you would think that we, he would be using saved here, since he's talking about uh, sin uh, and healed in verse 15 when he's dealing with physical sickness, but he, but he switches them around. And I, I think he's intentionally doing this. Uh, Jeremiah, in chapter 15, when he's very, very upset, uh, he calls God, he calls God a deceitful brook. He says, God, don't ever do this. He says, God, you've been lying to me. You deceived me. And, and over the course of the next chapter or so, God gently corrects him. And then Jeremiah in chapter 17 repents. And, and this is what he says. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. Jeremiah's not physically sick. But he, he's, he's, he's interchanging those words. Uh, in the Greek version, you see the same two words that, that James uses here. Probably James has this passage in mind. Because sin is a sickness of the soul and the physical body. The physical bodily sicknesses remind us of these things. Now James, uh, like Paul last week, assumes that you're not showing up to church once a month. That you're not popping in for the service and then running away as quickly as you can when the service is over before you have to talk to anybody. He assumes that you have friendships in the church close enough, intimate enough, trustworthy enough that you can confess your sins to one another. Now, of course, if you ever want to, you can come to me and you can confess your sins. You don't have to. You can be forgiven without that. But if you want to, you're all welcome to do that. But it is the congregation that's in view here. Now, this isn't Matthew 18. James here isn't telling you to go to someone who sinned against you and tell them about their sin. This is you confessing your sins to one another. You might, ask, you might ask at this point, why on earth would I do that? That's terribly embarrassing. Why would I go and tell other people my sins? Well, I'll tell you why you would do that. The sins that you keep hidden have the most power. It's easy to lie to yourself when you're by yourself. It's easy to rationalize and to justify what you're doing until you're a slave to the thing. Pornography is one of those things that comes to mind when I think about this. Uh, uh, some kind of hidden adultery, maybe. Some kind of substance abuse that nobody knows about. Now I know one reason you, you, you would want to keep something like that hidden is, is because it's, it's, it, it, it's embarrassing And it brings a sense of shame with it. I understand that. I felt it. But the power of whatever this thing is for you grows in the darkness. And it consumes you. It exhausts you. It makes you weary and haggard. And you can even get physically sick. Hidden sin is like a a creeping cancer that can spread from the soul to the body. And confession, the great thing about confession is that it drags drags that infection out to to the light where Christ can handle it, where the church can see it, where at least your friend can see it, and it's exposed, uh, where someone who loves you can see it, and someone who won't be deceived by your own deceptions can see it, and who will pray for you. And that's not a small thing, that's a big thing. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working in verse 16 and 17. Elijah, in 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now you might say, if you read the first line there in verse 16, you might say, well... Uh, this passage does not apply to me. I'm right out of the whole thing, the whole equation, because I'm not a righteous person. So, and James is talking about the prayer of a righteous person. I'm not righteous. I agree with you. You're not righteous, and neither am I. We're, none of us are righteous. James uses the righteous person, that phrase, almost exactly like Paul uses the word saint. Uh, Paul calls the Corinthian Christians saints. If you read the letters to the Corinthians, you know they're out there getting drunk on the communion wine and having inappropriate sexual relationships with each other and suing each other. They're awful people, but, but they trust in Jesus. And so God credits them with Jesus's righteousness. And so in God's eyes, they're saints. Same here. I'm a bad person. I'm far worse than you think I am, trust me. I'm a bad person, but I do trust in Jesus. And so God considers Jesus' righteousness as if it were my righteousness. And that means my prayer is the prayer of a righteous person. And so is yours. If you believe in Jesus, yours is the prayer of a righteous person. Now, to illustrate the power of a righteous person's prayer, uh, James brings in Elijah And this might at first seem like a bad strategy because it's like saying to somebody, here, here's a red cape and go climb up on top of that tall building and jump off because Superman does it all the time. I mean, Elijah is a great prophet. So why would you use him to convince the ordinary person to pray? Well, uh, James kind of answers you there. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with our own, just like us. and it's true, Elijah was brave at times, but he was also weak and cowardly. Elijah was a sinner, just, just like us, but he trusted in Yahweh, and so he prayed. You might notice your, 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 um, your Bible has the word fervently there, he prayed fervently. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's literally, he prayed with prayer. It sounds kind of odd, but the, but the doubling up there intensifies the word. And I don't think that James wants to emphasize Elijah's passion in his praying. I think that the, the James is intensifying the fact that Elijah prayed. He prayed. Despite his being who he was, he prayed. The power of prayer doesn't, doesn't reside in the amount of gusto that you can gin up before you pray, the the passion that you have. That doesn't matter. The power resides in the one to whom you pray, the object of your prayer. Think about that time with Elijah and the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. The priests of Baal, they were running all around. They were screaming, they were cutting themselves with blades, and they were yelling at Baal passionately and fervently, please send down fire from heaven and burn up the sacrifice. And Baal didn't do anything because Baal is nothing. Didn't happen. But, but, but by contrast, Elijah's prayer was very you know, boring. And, the God, and God heard it, and he answered this prayer, and the fire came down from heaven. And uh, and, and then uh, Elijah gives, or excuse me, James gives his other examples. He, he prayed for rain to come, and it came. Elijah's prayer was powerful because he prayed to the maker and the ruler of heaven and earth. So, maybe your friend, your brother, or your sister confesses to you, I'm drinking too much, and I can't stop. Or something else. In fact, I don't even want to stop. Help me. Well, there's lots of counsel you could give. There's lots of uh, good help out there for these kinds of things. And that's all good. I hope that you can direct those to those things. But first and foremost, pray for your friend because God's power is used often through prayer. God used the prayer of an ordinary man like Elijah to stop the rain. He can use your prayer to heal a wayward heart. So pray. My brothers, if anyone, verse 19, if anyone, brings, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, you've got to be careful how you read this because you don't want to think, well, if I find someone who's wandering away and bring them back, um, I'm going to save my soul from death. And I'm going to cover over all, all my sins. That's not what, what, James, what James is saying. Your sins are already, if you're a believer, covered and you're already forgiven. This is not what this is about. Uh, it's the person who returns. The person who returns, that person's soul is saved and sins are covered. Now, it's possible for a person to become terribly confused, a person who comes to church regularly, to become terribly confused, to be lost, to be influenced by some false teacher or teaching out there, and to be ultimately enslaved by some sin that leads him away or her away. Uh, There was a young woman who used to come here, and she was, I mean, she was fervent. We're talking about fervency. She was fervent. Uh, she was a, a small group leader uh, at BU. Uh, she led a small group there. Uh, she was an evangelist. She would always be bringing people to church and telling people about Jesus. It was I, I was impressed by her. Well, she met a guy um, who, who wasn't a believer, and one thing led to another, and they moved in together, and then one thing, that thing leads to another, and sure enough, ultimately, she decides, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe any of it anymore. That's a common pattern. You get caught up in some sin. You love it. And so you might at first try to fit it in with the Bible, see how it could maybe mesh the two things, mesh the two things together. But but if you keep going down that path, eventually you'll decide just to chuck the whole thing. Uh, in, in my experience, people rarely leave the faith for intellectual reasons, like they've been persuaded intellectually to leave Christianity. No, the, the, sin, the sin comes first. You start to love the darkness first. Then you find intellectual justification to stamp out the light. That's how it works. Don't do that. Now, the good news is, is that if the woman I mentioned is really one of the, the, the Lord's lost sheep, well, we know what he does with those. He, he leaves the 99 and he goes out after the one and he brings her back and he, he saves her. He brings her back to the flock. And so if that's true about her, he will find her one day and, and bring her back. But James here uh, tells us that Jesus often does that bringing back through you. Now, it's not your business to decide whether someone's really a sheep or not. That's not your business. But your business is to see and to find those who wander and attempt to bring them back. Now, most of you know what wandering looks like, too. Someone maybe attends every Sunday. They're here every Sunday morning. Um, But then he drops out of this ministry or she stops coming to the home group or, or, or Bible study. Then... Start attending maybe, maybe twice a month, and even that's hard to do, and then maybe, maybe once a month, and, and then, sure enough, over time, they're gone, not, not coming back. And you might wonder, was well, that really my business? Yes, James says it is your business. You are your brother's keeper and your sister's keeper. It is your business. Go out and, and find that person. Bring them back. And, and what a promise comes with this command, with this instruction. No matter how far the wanderer goes, no matter how deeply into the darkness that person is, whoever returns, even at the last, the last moment to Jesus, there, there's no recrimination here. There, there's no... Now that you're back, it's time for your beating. It's, it's, it's no punishment. Um, the multitude of this person's sin is covered. Jesus saves this person's soul from death. It's a wonderful promise. So I hope you'll go and find those you know to be wandering and do everything you can to bring them back and to pray for them. Let's stop here and pray ourselves. Uh, Father, we thank you for... Um, for the comfort and the the healing and the salvation that you give to us um, through Jesus and in the ways that Jesus distributes that healing and comfort through his church. We thank you for pastors. We thank you for the sacraments. We thank you for the word. We thank you for your people. Um, Lord, I pray for anyone who is weary and suffering and exhausted or sick, that, uh, that you would minister to them, that you would comfort them and heal them. Um, I pray for those who might be on the verge of wandering that you would pull them back um, into, the, uh, into the block. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.